0: Nicholas Bornoz of Capital Inc. I would like to welcome you uh, to this panel. Uh, the discussion on this panel is going to focus on alternatives and real assets. And we are going to have a discussion on REITs, MLPs, preferreds and convertibles. And uh, before turning the floor over to Alex Rees from Stiffel, Alex is also part of our advisory uh, committee. Uh, I would like to thank each one of you for your participation. One of the things that I mentioned uh, Uh, in the opening uh, remarks today is that one of the great things that we have been able to develop and enjoy during this 20-year period that we're hosting this event is a great group of supporters who year after year help us to put together a great event uh, in terms of content. And thank you again for your uh, support and contribution uh, and sponsorship. So Alex, the floor is yours. Thank you again
1: great thank you very much um you know before we start i would also like to extend a thanks to nicholas and his team um this is a very complicated affair and they do a lot of work behind the scenes uh to make it all come together as smooth as it does Um, This conference, I'm sure everybody has been finding it as I have, interesting and engaging as usual. Um, But with that, we unfortunately only have 40 minutes today uh, for what is a very uh, current and applicable topic, Um, and I'm sure very few people showed up to hear me. Um, We have four exceptionally experienced panelists for our discussion today uh, for alternative and real assets. First, Barry Nelson, who is uh, one of the partners and now senior advisor at Advent Capital Management. Um, Barry uh, probably taught me more than anybody else that I know uh, about convertible bonds, and I doubt that I'm the only person on Wall Street that can say that. Um, We have Ryan Sullivan, who's the co-head of Real Assets at Aberdeen. Uh, Matt Sally, who is a Senior Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager at Tortoise. Uh, he brings deep experience to energy and MLP investing. And also Paolo Almeida, uh, who is the Chief Investment Officer at Tufton Investment Management. Uh, he also has deep experience in the shipping industry uh, and insight into investing in alternative assets. Um, I'm sure we will have plenty of questions that come from the floor. We will address those as the presentations continue. Um, and I also have a few of my own uh, at the end. Uh, so with that, I'll turn it over to Barry. And let's get started.
2: Gosh, Alex, uh, thanks for those uh, kind remarks. And you've done a great job in uh, an odd field, closed end fund research, uh, not enough research uh, into this um, type of security but uh, here we are to uh, enlighten the listeners. Convertibles, uh, the nature of convertibles, the concept of capturing equity-like returns over time because of the tendency for convertibles to capture uh, most of the upside of the underlying common stocks while uh, having excellent downside uh, protection. And these characteristics uh, seem to me, uh, and I'm prejudiced, to be uh, especially timely right now. I mean, we're worried about inflation and convertibles offer equity sensitivity. The value of companies ought to go up with inflation. If inflation or rising interest rates ensue, that can pressure PE multiples. Yet The record shows over the last 20 years, when there have been periods of increases in the interest rate on the 10-year treasury, that uh, convertibles have usually gone up and have consistently outperformed uh, all other fixed income uh, uh, asset classes. yields are low in all of our assets uh, asset classes these days but in convertibles at least we do have mandatory convertibles uh, which um, provide their asymmetry essentially by having uh, much higher yields uh, than the underlying uh, stocks and of course um, uh, whatever's coming with uh, taper rising interest rates uh, god knows uh, Higher volatility increases the theoretical value of convertibles and uh, creates trading opportunities. And uh, we're in a period uh, in the wake of record issuance of new convertibles in the U.S. last year and continuing this year. gives us uh, lots more opportunities. Um, Tech, uh, consumer, uh, healthcare, uh, those are dominant sectors that... uh, all have uh, favorable prospects um, at the moment. Uh, Both are us uh, among convertible issuers and uh, that's been uh, the place to be. And I've talked as fast as I can. Uh, Alex, you are on mute.
1: I am unmuted. Sorry, that is a a fail for the moderator. Um, Thank you very much for that introduction. I'm sure there's gonna be a lot that we'll get into, um, but I think Ryan is gonna go next. We'll do some of the prepared remarks and then we'll kind of gather questions at the end.
3: Great, thanks Alex. And and thanks everyone for joining today. So as Alex mentioned, I am the co-head of Real Assets at Aberdeen. Um, I spend the majority of my time on the global infrastructure space uh, I help manage a closed-end fund in this that space that actually spans both the public and the private markets. Um, I actually spend the majority of my time on the private side of things, and so wanted to kind of provide some, some high-level commentary there. But maybe just as a starting point, I think one interesting note about the closed-end fund structure is the ability to put in private, more illiquid investments into the vehicle. Again, you don't have to worry about the capital inflows and outflows. So the fact that the closed-end fund structure is a permanent pool of capital that can ultimately support more illiquid types of investments, we think is particularly unique. And it's particularly unique as you look at the global infrastructure space for a variety of reasons. I think first and foremost, there's been obviously a lot of capital attracted into the space, but the private markets can be a bit more inefficient than on the public side of things. Um, That inefficiency, if you invest in a thoughtful way, can lead to a slightly higher yield profile. So as investors continue to think about this low yield environment, we believe both public and private infrastructure assets can uh, do a a great job in generating that amount of yield. And if you're willing and have the ability to take on the illiquid nature of some of these private infrastructure investment opportunities, it can can be a real contributor towards that. I think the other thing that we've thought a lot about and not too surprisingly is just the, the increasing prospects of inflation. Um, and Barry mentioned it earlier, but, but infrastructure historically has been a very good inflation hedge as well. Um, on the private infrastructure side, we're typically looking at assets that have very directly linked inflation income streams. So owning a particular asset that will step up with inflation over time, we think that's critically important. And again, is, a, is, is really a unique attribute of the broader infrastructure landscape. Like the final point I was going to talk about is just kind of where we are in the global infrastructure space, again, at a high level. Uh, lots of headlines in the space. It's very, very topical from a political standpoint. Uh, but as we step back and, and look at things, there's there's really kind of two halves to infrastructure as we see it today. Uh, on one side, you have some of the higher growth infrastructure sectors. These would be areas like renewable power, communications infrastructure, certain segments of the water infrastructure landscape. Uh, key reason for that is there's a lot of decentralization going on, right? Renewables is probably the best example where we're going from centralized kind of coal-fired power plants, as an example, to a very decentralized wind and solar and other types of technologies on the renewable side. And so we think that presents some really unique investment opportunities across both the public and private landscape. And then the second half is more of your kind of stable kind of uh, elements of, of infrastructure, right? Historically, these were things like bridges and toll roads. Again, obviously, notwithstanding some of the COVID impacts, those continue to be Uh, high quality, high barrier to entry types of assets, importantly with those inflation linkages. So again, really looking forward to today's discussion and and hopefully that at least sets the table a little bit on on where I focus and and the things that we think about in the global infrastructure space.
1: Well, thank you very much for that, Ryan. Um, And and now on to Matt for a bit. Uh, Matt, um, can you just give us a little bit of background on on what Tortoise is working on right now and some of the different aspects in the MLP world that uh, you can come up to speed on?
4: Yeah, I think... Uh, most people view view Tortoise as an MLP shop, but in in reality, I mean that is that is our roots, but we've developed quite a bit of capabilities over the last you know decade. Um, so basically, you know we're focused on broadly uh, infrastructure, but energy infrastructure, and within that we include uh, midstream, like I said, most people know us for, but also power. Uh, and and renewables and, you know, kind of broadly, we refer to this as decarbonizing infrastructure. So there's a lot going on to kind of meet the world's needs for, um, you know, more energy, but less carbon in the future. And we can do this in public and private formats. Um, So we've built out a lot of capabilities really to invest in, um, you know, not just kind of traditional energy infrastructure, as people think about it, but, you know, renewable fuels and wind and solar Uh, again, both in public and private formats. Um, And we think, you know, there's we don't think there is a lot uh, obviously going on in in the world of energy. Um, You know, when you think about how how do you continue to supply the world's uh, energy needs, but do so with less carbon in the future? um, You know, I think the one that people think about most clearly that's most understandable is decarbonizing power infrastructure. So basically replacing coal with gas and renewables um, and that's creating tremendous opportunities and you know a lot of investment needed uh, uh, you know in, in presents years of, of visible cash flow growth for the, for the power sector. And as you think about midstream energy infrastructure, uh, they're also part of the solution, which I think people don't necessarily uh, uh, you know recognize that these companies are doing, uh have, have made net zero commitments so majority of our portfolios made net zero commitments uh, and is, is also uh significantly addressing the methane emissions uh that have, have been uh you know uh, a, a black eye for the natural gas space so really kind of cleaning up their operations but also investing in renewable fuels um in carbon capture which is about three and a, a half trillion uh dollar total addressable market and you know I think we I think it's pretty clear when you see what's going on in uh, you know Western Europe or China that you really need an all-the-above approach to to you know keep the lights on but do so with with less carbon and that's creating uh, you know a a tremendous opportunity and we're we're particularly uh, focused on in infrastructure and um, certainly there's a uh, a uh, positive uh, tailwind from inflation and strong commodity prices and all those things going on in the space right now. So we're pretty excited about the future, in particular, relative to kind of the last you know five years of poor performance stream.
1: Excellent. Um, thank you very much for that. Uh, I, I would like to also turn to Paolo, um, who has deep experience in shipping, uh, reading in his bio um you know, a, a, a truly extraordinary resource that we have in front of us. And I, I can sort of speak for myself and say, I know less about the shipping business and I know less about the investment opportunities there. So um, without further ado, Paolo, please. Uh,
5: yeah, thanks, Alex. Um, so I'm the CIO of Tufton Investment Management. We are headquartered um, uh, in London. Uh, in addition to managing about $900 um, million in private funds, for European institutions. We have a uh, London listed fund, although it is listed in London, um, it is quoted in in, uh, dollars called Tufton Oceanic uh, Assets got a market cap of just under uh, 400 million. uh, We listed nearly four four years ago. What we've done um, first privately, and then uh, in the public space is to bring to um, institutional investors and ask a real asset class that has historically been very difficult um, to access. Um, It's a market that roughly uh, is worth about a trillion dollars in terms of ships that are of um, what we call commercially important uh, vessels um, that we track um, on a global basis that move um, goods around the world, which a lot of people um, seem to uh, very much take for granted until we have issues like COVID, we have issues like the Ever Given. um, And then we had clearly a lot of supply chain issues um, lately and also just before the global financial crisis. Clearly it's an asset class that's been around um, uh, for a very long time. um, Historically dominated by a few large listed companies um, and also families Um, over the past 10 or 20 years. Um, Shipping tends to be behind aviation um, or aircraft leasing by about 10 years and behind real estate by about 20, 30, 40 years. It's gone from being a a business that was dominated by um, a number of families, um, some actually quite small, into one where institutional capital has come into over time and we've helped make it accessible. The asset class is interesting. Um, We believe and clearly our investors believe it produces quite attractive yields on our portfolios over the past seven or eight years, although some of them have been not particularly good markets for parts of the the shipping industry. We've produced low teens, unlevered uh, cash on cash returns fairly consistently. Um, We've seen a lot of capital appreciation uh, over the past year uh, uh, or so, and we've done so in a fairly risk averse way, which is to invest across the three main segments of shipping which have low correlations uh, with each other, with low leverage, and by taking uh, a limited amount of spot or merchant business risk, putting most of our charters, most of our uh, ships on medium-term charters of about three years. So most of our funds have about three years uh, of cash flow visibility. We think shipping even becomes more more interesting for investors over the next few years, because shipping, like some of the asset classes that um, other panelists have mentioned, historically has been a very good Uh, Inflation hedge.
1: Well, anyway, thank you very much for that. Um, We are getting a few questions that are coming in from the field. Uh, I'm sure there are going to be a few more, but I I just wanted to start. um, You know, we've done this panel many years, uh, and Barry and I have been on panels several times. and it just seems that with the, with the with the market that we had in 2020 and how well convertibles did, um, you know, many funds, including Advents, performed remarkably well. Um, so a, a couple of questions. Uh, first of all, do you think that convertibles are really entering the mainstream in a way that they sort of hadn't before? Um, I mean, do you still belong on the alternatives panel uh, because of, of, of how well they've done and how well people are integrating them? Uh, and also then just as one follow-on question for investors that have yet to really integrate convertibles into their portfolio work, but have a more traditional 60-40 mindset. Um, what advice do you have for them when it comes to starting to, to, to make investments in this space?
2: Gosh, if I can tackle the concept of whether we are still alternatives, uh, I'd say convertibles uh, never enter the mainstream. I mean, we've, uh, We've studied them going back nearly 200 years in the US, and there were also some in earlier centuries even, uh, 300 years ago. Um, It's it's always a niche. It would be a miracle if we became uh, mainstream. Um, So I sure wouldn't bet on that, although convertibles uh, are certainly enjoying a very good run of new issuance. Uh, which happens uh, periodically. Market never goes away, but sometimes uh, issuance slows down. Sometimes it speeds up, and we've been in a speed up in the last uh, year and a half. Regarding the uh, typical 60-40 balance uh, between uh, equities and fixed income, we see convertibles as akin to an automatic transmission. That is, convertibles uh, become more equity sensitive when the underlying stocks go up, and convertibles become more bond-like if the underlying stocks go down. So in essence, convertibles are always providing a sort of an automatic uh, reallocation as opposed to what is necessary if a portfolio starts out 60% equities and 40% uh, fixed income, and at some point annually or whenever, it has to be uh, rebalanced. And I think we all know Almost everybody drives an automatic car. Um, and uh, automatics uh, do work better than stick shifts. Uh, you get better mileage. And I think the record shows that we get better mileage with convertible securities.
1: That's very interesting. And I and I, I think um, the more that I have learned about the asset class and had a chance to now watch it for 15 years, um, 20 years, that is, that is true. Um, I had a question. My next question is for Ryan uh, and maybe also Paolo, if you want to jump in. Um, You know, Ryan, I know that you would focus on on the private uh, real estate space and you've given us some view of the public versus private opportunities uh, that are available in real assets. Um, Can you explore about how investors should think about investing across liquid or illiquid investments? And again, with a nod towards portfolio construction and, and how to integrate these alternatives into a more traditional portfolio?
3: Yeah, Alex, it's a really great question because as, as we engage with clients, that, that is typically the question a lot of people are asking, right? What is the right mix between public and, and private? And, and listen, I do think it it speaks to each individual or institution and their liquidity tolerance and, and ultimately what their longer term kind of goals are. But I think level setting that a little bit, there's a couple things that we think a lot about um, as we think about public versus private. Um First and foremost is, is there's absolutely no reason to be in the private markets if you're not going to get any sort of, of alpha or illiquidity premium or, or what you whatever you want to call it. So we do think that regardless of whether it's within a closed-end fund wrapper or just broader portfolio construction, every single private investment opportunity that we look at, we compare it to the public markets, right? And we say, hey, if there's a really interesting communication infrastructure asset that we're looking for, well, we can buy a stock in the public markets at a cheaper level, why wouldn't you do that, right? Because you can get it's more liquid and you can, can buy and sell out of it. So that's a really important framework that we think about. Um, there has been a lot of capital raised into the private infrastructure space, right? The private infrastructure universe is, is much, much larger than the public infrastructure side of things. And as a result of that, there are times when some of the typically very large transactions will go off at a multiple much, much higher than where the publics are trading. And from our standpoint and how we approach the space, that doesn't really make sense, right? You should really be thinking about where is there an attractive entry point in the private markets that can really complement the public side of things. And so private investing is obviously harder. It's much more resource intensive. It's very bottom up in nature, but we we do believe and, and have found some unique opportunities where you can go into a very inefficient and fragmented market and ultimately acquire some assets or have a business plan to to build out a portfolio at a lower valuation. And ultimately that can be a very nice complement to to, to what you have on the public side of things. Uh, We think that the private should outperform publics by anywhere from three to 5% on a long-term basis. Um, But it's much more fundamental than that, that you need to think about every single investment coming at it from a bottom-up side of things on the private uh, infrastructure side of things. And then my ultimate hedged answer is we, we do believe it's important to have a little bit of both, right? We wouldn't necessarily advocate for all of one or all the other for a variety of reasons. But I, th- I importantly think that that framework and structure is, is critical to think about when at least starting to deploy capital into the private infrastructure space.
1: That's very interesting. Uh, yeah, and again, maybe just turn the question over to Paulo um, because investments in the shipping arena for many U.S. investors are a really new concept. Um, yeah, just a little bit about integrating it and thoughts on on, on liquidity and illiquidity in those kinds of different environments.
5: Sure. Well, um, you know, there have been times where the the um, uh, the shipping stocks have been, and I, I think. You know, the past few months, the U.S. shipping stocks have been potentially quite interesting and liquid, liquid place, lots of, lots of news flow. Um, although, you know, we can't say that about much uh, of the past 30 years other than perhaps the 2004, four five to 2007, seven eight period where on the back of, um, you know, primarily um, strong, very strong growth in China where shipping sort of became a darling uh, asset class um, for, for a few years. Um, uh, and, but clearly the, the valuations and, uh, liquidity, um, have been very volatile. Um, they sort of go, uh, step in step. They work together, um, in that market. And even, even now after the performance that the shipping markets have seen over the past few years, the, the market cap of the whole, uh, New York listed shipping, uh, industry, you know, will be far, far less than it was in 2007, uh, 2008. Um, so we, you know, we access it effectively, essentially through a private strategy, which we think is, is, is the right way. If you are looking for, uh, the cash flows, the diversification and the real asset, um, aspects, uh, of shipping, if you want to take a bet on a specific segment with, um, very high operating leverage and high um, financial leverage. That's traditionally, which traditionally hedge funds have done, which are not a target uh, investor of ours, but hedge funds have been very big investors in these New York and to shipping companies in the past. Now, whether you access that through private, you you access an underlying private strategy through a private fund or uh, through uh, a public fund, you know, that really comes down to philosophy of the investor, which we can't, which we can't dictate, but also um, ticket size. So the strategies that we run for a few European institutions, each of those portfolios is between 250 and about $400 million. There aren't that many um, uh, investors who have that much capital to put, um, uh, to, to, put to work in, in shipping. So we have a $400 million or so um, listed vehicle where we have a few investors who own uh, about 10% of it. Um, we have a few that own about 5% of it. And of course, just like every other listed company, we have a long tail of investors and, you know, we love them all, not just the big uh, and and uh, and uh, medium-sized ones. So we, this is a, a way for um, institutions, so uh, smaller pension funds, charities, uh, endowments, and uh, high net worth individuals to access shipping through this risk-averse strategy that otherwise is very difficult to access unless you can write a very, very big ticket.
2: Right.
1: Fascinating. Um, my, my, I have one more question, um, and, and this one's for Matt. Um, energy infrastructure has just had a bang up year, Um, you know, by one measure, the Allerian index, I think is up 85% in the one year period, um, which has just been obviously fantastic. And and you can just see that the flows are following. Um, But so two questions. Uh, First, sort of like, where do we go from here? What's your what's your prognosis on this on this uh, fascinating market? Um, And also, again, how do you think again, from the perspective of an individual investor, how do you go about negotiating the volatility that comes with energy infrastructure and, again, portfolio integration?
4: Yeah, so, yes, the one-year numbers have have been pretty good, but, you know, if you had to kind of consider the starting place, and obviously, uh, 2021 has been a lot more fun for me than than 2020 was. Um, It was absolutely, you know, really difficult year. Um, And if you just think about, midstream energy infrastructure um, over the last, you know, five years kind of leading up to the pandemic. These companies were investing over 70 billion dollars a year to try and keep up with, you know, U.S. shale production growth, generating significant negative free cash flow, um, you know, misalignment between management teams and their investors. The global crude market was oversupplied, you know, midstream was was paying up to, you know, midstream public companies were paying up to buy assets from private equity. Um, And, you know, 2020 kind of reset all that. It was incredibly painful. However, U.S. production growth has has took a step back and has now kind of leveled off. Um, So there's not a lot of need for additional investment. So as we look forward there's enormous free cash flow that these companies are generating because the cash flows you know even during the pandemic fell by a few percent so the stock prices were down you know 65 percent at one point the cash flows were still there and there was a lot of technical factors driving that as we look forward uh, if you look at the free cash flow generation of the space over the next you know just inside of 10 years it's greater than the market cap of the space so um, I think that does a couple of things. Number one, it allows management teams to deleverage if they need to, and that we're largely kind of through that, but um, pay, you know, stable and somewhat growing dividends, but then buyback stock because the stock prices, you know, basically if you look at a cash flow yield of, of the equities, they're trading in the mid-teens. So it's hard to find a capital project that's going to have returns, you know, higher than effectively a guaranteed mid-teens sort of IRR. Um, so we're really encouraging management teams to buy back stock that is happening, and I think that's part of the reason that the space has has rebounded, along with a lot of macro factors. Inflation is great for the space. Commodity prices are tight or just are high. Um, if you look at just the, you know, we've had basically five years of underinvestment in new oil and gas supply, um, and as we come out of, you know, certainly that you know, was really exacerbated in 2020. And we're coming out of that and demand is off the charts. Um, you know, gasoline demands uh, basically at an all-time high. Uh, natural gas demands, you know, you know, well above any any previous levels. And there's not enough supply to meet that. So that sets up really well from a macro standpoint for the space, um, providing a nice tailwind. Um, on top of that, these companies are, the, the public companies are now selling assets to private equity at multiples that are higher than where the public markets are trading at, which um, is, you know. As we talked about previously, it doesn't make sense. Um, and then the last thing uh, I will mention, or fail to mention, I should fin- conclude with, is companies, uh, energy companies, have been very resistant to energy transition and decarbonizing. That has changed 180 degrees. And if you just look at all, you know, just over the last, you know, basically in the third quarter, all the different announcements that have come out from midstream em- energy companies and things they're doing to invest in renewable natural gas, renewable diesel. Um, you know, starting to invest in hydrogen, partnering with renewable companies. Um, There's just a lot of exciting things going on, Um, but I think underlying all that is is capital discipline that will help drive returns, you know, for the foreseeable future on top of a a really good macro setup.
1: Good. Very good. Um, Interesting all around. Um, We have a couple of questions coming from the audience. Um, the first one is directed to Barry. Um, the, the, the questioner says it has, has two parts to the question. Um, noting that a lot of the closed end funds that invest in convertibles uh, utilize some leverage. Uh, they have a two part question. Um, one in terms of the rising borrowing costs and what that might do to fund performance. Um, also then leading into an inflationary environment. What, what do convertibles do? Um, if you're in a period where inflation runs uh, runs above average. Barry, I think you're muted.
2: Okay, well then I can correct any blunders I made in my uh, first remark. Anyway, it's obvious that uh, rising cost of leverage uh, is a negative. Um, As long as our returns are favorable, though, we will still tend to benefit uh, from leverage. We also have the flexibility to deleverage. And of course, we have the flexibility to hedge against rising rates. So it isn't isn't an open and shut case uh, that rising rates uh, necessarily um, will um, result in unfavorable returns. In terms of inflation, Um, I would say that um, history shows that convertibles did very well in the second half of the 1970s and in the 1980s when we had high inflation and perhaps worse we had uh, the stagflation that we all worry about uh, recurring uh, right now and that was uh, it was a glorious period uh, for convertibles and uh I've been on the street since 1972, and I have a vivid recollection of it. It was a bad time in general, but it was a good time for convertibles.
1: Right, and I think that also speaks to uh, some of the advantages of these actively managed portfolios, where as dynamics change, um, you know, there are real professionals here with a lot of experience that manage these products, and yes, they do. They do try to adapt to conditions as we find them. Um, we have another very interesting question that's sort of uh, touched on from the audience, and I think this one's primarily for Ryan. Um, the question really went to the to the definition of decarbonization. And, you know, when you look at infrastructure assets, obviously there's going to be a lot of panels today that mention ESG. And I, I think a lot of these definitions uh, really sort of have to get tightened up. So when, when you speak about decarbonization and some of the, the opportunities that are available at Aberdeen, can you give us a little bit of clarity on that?
3: Yeah, sure, Alex. And so I, I think you're absolutely right that the definition needs to get a, a little tighter and, and people will still think of decarbonization in lots of different ways. But as we step back and think about it and, and it relates to our underlying investment strategy, there's there's kind of two halves to decarbonization as we see it. The first is to decarbonize the electricity grid. Right. So this is is where we're very well defined at this point. Right. You can replace a coal fired power plant with wind and solar um, and then the second order to that is try and electrify as much as you can, right? So go from a conventional kind of gasoline powered car to electric vehicles, right? You can kind of force houses and businesses to heat through electricity versus fuels. And so that element of the decarbonization, in our view, started really back in the kind of, kind of early 2010 timeframe, right, where you see a lot of subsidiary, subsidies move into the renewable space and solar and wind back then wasn't very cost competitive today. It is because it's been subsidized for a long period of time. There's been some great technological advancements. I think the second half of the decarbonization story, and Matt actually touched on it, is more on the fuel side of things, right? So if you can also think about decarbonizing the fuel set and going from, for example, conventional natural gas to renewable natural gas, That's another critical element of the decarbonization story, right? Very similar on the the renewable diesel side of things, right? If you can replace that with something with a more uh, renewable renewableized feedstock, that is a critical element to decarbonization. And I would also add into that carbon capture. Um, So those are kind of newer areas of the infrastructure space, right? As you think about renewable natural gas, carbon capture, there's new technologies coming into the market. Um, typically those are a bit higher cost from an operating standpoint. But the other thing that we're spending a lot of time thinking about is the emergence of the carbon credits market and how does the carbon credits market interact with owning the underlying infrastructure, right? Because if you really think about it, if you own a renewable natural gas uh, facility, you're not only selling natural gas, you're also having the income stream from the carbon credits side of things. And so how do you hedge that out? How do people think about that? Will there be Corporations that will enter into long-term inflation-linked contracts, for example, that relate to the underlying infrastructure, which is what we're trying to do, right? Root a broad global portfolio in high-quality assets that are essential in nature and, importantly, have that inflation linkage. So th- there's a lot to the decarbonization definition, but if you think about those two broad halves, the renewableization of everything on the electricity side is, is much more well-defined today. I think the fuels carbon capture piece is something that's going to be very interesting to watch moving forward.
1: Well, oh, thank you very much for that. Um, that's actually very interesting. I think it really uh, prompts a follow-on question that I have for Paolo and maybe also for Matt. Um, Paolo, I know that in the shipping world this past year, there was a major issue in terms of transitioning fuels to lower sulfur contents and all these other things. What Do you have anything to follow on about what Ryan is saying uh, about you know the electrification of, of many things uh, has has sort of happened now for, for a long time. It's been ongoing, but this move towards regulating fuels and thinking about that. Um, how do you look at that with, with an expertise in the shipping industry?
5: Sure, um, decarbonization of shipping is um, as as we just you know made a we made a public statement about it a couple of weeks ago during uh, Climate Week. We were one of only about twenty um, shipping companies and investors in the world to commit to invest in zero carbon capable ships before twenty thirty, and to fully decarbon and a few more companies as well. Um, have a very important, but also slightly less ambitious target of going zero carbon by 2050. So we all know, uh, well, uh, I think most people uh, believe the world has to and will get to uh, zero carbon uh, by 2050. But we strongly believe that unless we do uh, take significant steps before 2030, it's much more difficult to get to uh, to, to 2050. Um before going into a, a few more things on that, just Ryan mentioned um, renewable diesel, um, as it so happens around the same time, um, we ran a, a ship, which a few other people have done as well, but we're probably one of the first five or so to have run a, a full voyage of a couple of weeks fully on a renewable diesel so we ran it on a voyage from uh, Europe to um, the Great Lakes uh, and back, where Fuel is um, uh, recycled uh, cooking oil, so I, I don't know actually to the extent that you see this um, in the U.S., but it's you know pretty significant in in Europe. Also, given that we probably use more diesel um, than um, uh, than in the U.S., but there are more and more buses and, and and trucks that use recycled cooking oil, which means it's fully renewable. You're not growing plants just to make the diesel, you're actually recycling something that otherwise would, would go to waste, rot, and then release uh, carbon dioxide. As I said, we, we committed to start investing in zero carbon capable ships before 2030. Um, it, a, a very famous uh, lawyer from within the shipping industry came in last week and asked me, um, you know, what our plan uh, is, is for that. Clearly there is a plan, but it's a little bit, I told him it's a little bit like getting married. Um, it's something you do once, Uh, In your life, you don't have all the answers, um, but you have you think you have a lot of the answers and you're committed to getting there um, in the long term. The technology is there um, and we are prepared to uh, put capital to work where we can share risks with other people um, in the industry. So if there are um, so if Ikea, um, as it already does, Ikea's customers are pushing Ikea to to reduce its carbon footprint ikea obviously needs to transport a lot of things around the world to its stores they press the shipping companies to reduce their carbon footprint the shipping companies need partners like like tufton whether a listed fund or private funds to provide them with assets that are capable of burning um, those green those green fuels they take some of the risks um, in, in terms of they have to source the fuels because it's the shipping companies that pay for the fuels ultimately just like if if um, American Airlines uh, leases a plane from what used to be GE Capital. It's not GE Capital that buys the fuel. It's American Airlines. It's our customers that buy the fuel. They take the sourcing risk on it, but we spend the money on the vessels in order that they can burn those green fuels. Uh, and this is going to be um, you know, a very fascinating area over the next three, five, seven years.
1: Very interesting. Uh, maybe one last question. I know we only have about a minute left, but Matt, can you address some of the issues around uh, the carbon credits and other things that Ryan had touched on?
4: yeah i think i mean um ryan mentioned the carbon credits on renewable natural gas are important revenue stream there are you know 80 or 90 percent of the revenue stream depending on the the source whether it comes from uh you know landfill versus uh dairy waste the dairy waste can create you know significant negative carbon emissions which has a ton of value for that gas um so we're seeing companies like kinder morgan have actually invested bought a company um that is that is uh, a producer of renewable natural gas and they're expanding that business pretty rapidly and we think that gas um don't think we're virtually certain that gas is going to have significantly more value than fossil natural gas because corporates like Microsoft if you're trying to get to net zero you know investing or or, or purchasing uh negative emission fuels is far more effective than you know putting renewables on your building which help off, you know avoid carbon emissions, you know, when you talk about renewable natural gas, again, depending on the source, you can get into significant negative emissions. Um, So I think these are really powerful tools that traditional energy companies are bringing to to, to part of the decarbonization solution.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much, everybody. I think we have officially run out of time, uh, but this is a fascinating discussion, and I really thank you all for your participation. Uh, Nicholas, thank you, too.
0: Well, I will close the uh, the session by simply saying thank you very much. Indeed, a very uh, insightful and uh, interesting discussion. Thank you very, very much. Thank Thank you.